everyone, and welcome to the sixth episode of the Head Games Podcast. I am your host, Brian Gottlieb. Here with me, as always, is my co-host, Jonathan Carter. Hello, Jonathan. What's up today? Hello. Um, I'm excited for what we're about to try. Yeah, we have a really cool episode on deck. I don't want to waste much time. I want to get right into it because we have a lot to cover. But I just want to give a quick shout out to one of our listeners, Swarm Tides. I only know this person by their internet handle, so I can't give their real name. Uh, but Swarm Tides, after listening to our episode on motivation, took it upon themselves to find some motivation, and they actually transcribed our entire episode. And if you follow us over on Twitter, at Head Games Podcast, you can check it out. I posted a link to it. And it's uh, just a really great resource for you know anyone who may be hard of hearing and not able to listen to our cast, or if you're trying to introduce Head Games to someone who's like, I just don't like podcasts. <laughs> well, maybe this is the way to get them on board. Let them read a transcribed version of our cast and let it take off from there. What'd you think about that transcription work, Jonathan? Kind of incredible, right? Yeah. Like we were talking about it before the cast and I was trying to pinpoint what I felt about it. And I think awe is the best way to describe it. I'm already amazed that people decide to listen to us every week. And here's a person who not only listened to us, but I imagine I had to do it a couple times because looking at that transcript, it was so detailed. And I had to I just stop myself at a certain point because it's all ready to to go back and hear yourself talk, but to just see your words put out into text was was pretty bizarre. But it, it's awesome that, that that resource is now available for people. Yeah, I had the same experience. You know, I've been podcasting for a while now, and I've gotten somewhat used to hearing my voice because I do listen and you know try and find ways to improve on my casting. For when I was reading my words, it was the same <laughs> awkwardness I used to have back when I first started podcasting. So very strange, but thank you so much, Swarm Tides. And I, I hope people will use that resource and share it with people who might have interest in our cast. So that being said, let's hop into our topic for this week. And this is something we really wanted to try. I don't know how it's going to go, <laughs> uh, but I'm, I'm excited to see where this ends up. Basically, what we did is we took a group of our listeners and we posed them some questions. And these questions all related to things we had talked about in previous episodes. So some of them relate to motivation. Some of them relate to failure. Some of them relate to imposter syndrome. All these topics we've covered before, we wanted to get some listener experiences dealing with these issues. And then Jonathan and I are kind of kind of bounce back and forth some ideas, uh, maybe some solutions, maybe just some assessments of our listeners' ways of dealing with these particular problems in the hopes that other listeners can take something away from it, and we can take something away from it as well. So without any further ado, let me hit you with our first question that we posed to our listeners. We asked listeners to describe a time they were unable to find the motivation to prepare adequately for some form of competition. And our first response said the following, I've always struggled with weight management. There are many reasons for this. The solutions have always been available, and I have had knowledge and access to them. It required me to put forth the effort to explore and execute them. Jonathan, what's your takeaway from this first response? I'm actually really glad we got an answer like this because there was something in our motivation cast that I wanted to talk about and we just ran out of time or I forgot it or some combo. But it's this idea that sometimes seeking out knowledge about about something we're trying to achieve uh, gets in the own way. Uh, I don't know if it's a combination of our brain feeling like we already did it or just 
just having that knowledge gets in our way. But th- there was this cool study I looked into when I, I was getting my head straight for talking about motivation. And it was it was in the 60s, so it's a bit dated, but I think the what we get from it is really cool. So they looked at two groups of students and they surveyed them and, and gave them info about tetanus vaccines, which is, you know, for us, it's now run of the mill. Like it's, it's been a while, like it's, I think it's pretty well accepted. But, but at the time they gave one group of the students a pamphlet about tetanus that was like really, really scary uh, and had like detailed pictures, all sorts of stuff like that. And then they gave another group like a gentler packet about it. Like it, it didn't have as vivid detail. It didn't have any images. And then they surveyed them about whether or not they were intending to get like the shot for it. And the scary pamphlet group was way more likely to say, yeah, we're going to do it. Uh, but three months later, they looked at both groups and there was no significant difference onto who went and got it. Wow, that's incredible. So they were convinced in the moment of the need for the tetanus vaccine, but when it came to actual execution, they didn't do so. Yeah. So here's a group that had significantly more knowledge about a subject than the other one, but it had no meaningful difference about whether or not they actually did something about it. Is, is there any hypothesis for why that might prove to be the case? I, I think we see it all the time yearly actually like if you think around like new year's eve time when we start to set like these uh new year's resolutions right right everyone has this lofty often champagne infused goal of what the next year is going to be for them and i think a large portion of those people even look into it so maybe they figure out what the sweet new diet is they're going to try or what their exercise regimen is going to be but they don't put any plan in place that's going to alter the previous relationship they had with anything getting in the way with that goal. So it definitely points to the drastic difference between acknowledgement of the problem, solving the problem, at least theoretically, and the actual execution of that, that solution. You know, in my own life, it calls to me a diet I used to do. And I'm actually not going to mention the diet by name because I'm now kind of convinced it had some harmful effects on my relationship with food and, and the way I ate. Mm-hmm. But man, was this diet effective. Like there's been one time in my life I've had abs. It was doing this diet <laughs> religiously and it just worked. And everyone I advised to do the diet, you know, lost 20 pounds, 30 pounds. I know people who lost a hundred pounds. It just worked. It's the most effective diet I've ever seen and it's manageable. You can follow it. It's a lot of hard work, but it does ultimately work. And inevitably, you'd stop doing the diet, right? So this is the, our relationship with dieting. It's very rare that we actually implement wholesale lifestyle changes and you'd gain some weight back. But there's always this thing in my head like, well, I can just go back to the diet at any point. I know how efficiently it works. I'll just do it whenever. It doesn't matter. So it kind of gave me a way out. And I would allow myself to do this cycle of gain weight, lose weight, gain weight, lose weight, because I had this knowledge in my back pocket. And I wonder if this study is kind of detailing that effect. Like when you talk about the tetanus vaccine, you might be scared of tetanus in the moment. Well, you know, there's a vaccine, like you have a solution to this. Maybe, you know, right. your fear of the, the disease overall is diminished. Yeah, I think what's also interesting in uh, in the answer we got for this is the, the person said it required me to put forth the effort to explore and execute them, re- referring to the, the knowledge and solutions f- for it looks like dieting, exercise, etc. 
sounds a little bit to me like what research on goal setting would suggest. So there's this concept called implementation intentions where you go beyond the idea of here's what I want to achieve, but more being really deliberate with how you're going to get there and thinking about the things that get in your way. And so if you think of all these obstacles and then make a plan, they use the term uh, like when then thinking. So when, da, 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 then I will, da, 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 da. It, it sounds like this person figured out that that was something that they needed to do. And it wasn't just, okay, I know all these things that I should be doing, but if I'm actually going to have any success with this, there needs to be some effort put into how this actually gets executed. Right. Well, I, I think this was a, a great start to this question. Uh, definitely a lot to think about, but I want to keep I want to keep moving. Uh, we have a lot of questions to get through. So let me read you the next response to the exact same question. In my freshman year of college, I had to take my pre-calculus final exam a day early because of scheduling errors. I had done poorly in class up to that point, but a good grade in my final exam was enough to save me. I ended up mostly not studying and failed the final as well as the class. Reason I wasn't adequately motivated to prepare for the final was that I wasn't motivated to adequately prepare the entire semester. I was used to the level of effort I needed to pass my private high school classes. My professors weren't engaged with the class. I was away from home and depressed, and I foolishly allowed my grades to slip, thinking I would always catch back up like I had in high school. This kind of calls back to my experience, right? I have always done this in the past. I know it works. I'll just do it again. Yeah, I feel like I could have written this answer at some point. In my, oh, yeah. In my oh, life. yeah. Me too. Yeah, there's a bunch of things going on here. I think this person what like clearly wasn't having fun. So I think like it's hard seeing immediate value in particular in college. I feel like we are forced to take a bunch of courses that don't necessarily align with what it is we want to do in life, which is way different in grad school in my experience. So if, if you're trying to like be an expert in something like grad school is sweet. I just got to talk about sports psychology all the time, but in undergrad, like we take all these nonsense, other questions, classes that like don't really do anything. So I, they do things, yes, education system, whatever. Um, but I think <laughs> I think that's that's part of it. So it's just not fun. But I also I had this experience too coming out of high school and even coming out of undergrad, where I had a certain belief about my intelligence and what it had done for me up to that point, and it was reinforced constantly by my parents. Like, oh, you did well. That's because you're smart, Jonathan. I'm like, oh, thank you. But there's this concept, uh, Carol Dweck is the researcher called the, her book's called Mindset. I, I believe we talked about it on this cast already at some point. Um, but the idea is that it, some people have a belief about certain things being a fixed quantity and you either have it or you don't. And then once you're past that point, you tend to give up, not put in effort, et cetera. And so it sounds like mm. this person has largely had success up until this point without a ton of effort. And once they were required to put in effort, it was a little too late to catch up. Right. Like you said, very mirrored experience. One of the most harmful things to my development as not only a student, but honestly, a, a human being was whatever point in my life when I convinced myself I was very smart. <laughs> it was it was one of the worst things to ever happen to me. And now having experienced much more of the world and realizing how little I know about so many things and how truly not smart I am, or really any of us is, yeah. it's, it's like this incredible 
oversight in my development where I wonder what ha- would I have accomplished had I not convinced myself I was smart enough to get away with whatever I wanted for all those years. Because it's not true. I, there's always more to learn. You can always better yourself and you know, no one is so smart that they need to completely coast through everything. That doesn't prove anything. Yeah. It, it, it's just not a good way to go through life. And I wish I recognized that earlier on. Yeah, it, it sounds like this person also, we have very astute listeners, by the way. So Yes, for sure. <laughs> in some of these things, it sounds like they, like even just looking back, understand that the, the effort was different. Um, but I agree with you. That was perhaps one of my own biggest regrets is just looking back now that I know all this stuff, I just think like, wow, imagine like where I would be at in certain areas of knowledge or, or skills if I had put in that effort earlier. All right. Well, we're not here to bemoan the past. We're here to move (laughs) forward. So I'm going to read this question one more time because I I really like this response juxtaposed with the question itself. So we asked our listeners to describe a time you were unable to find the motivation to prepare adequately for some form of competition. And this response reads, never. I always prepare. (laughs) And First of all, I I love this response for its confidence and for its devotion to adequate preparation. This is someone who cares about their results, someone who takes their competition very seriously, and I love that. But I also wonder if there's some flaw with this answer, right? Because if you listen to the question, Mm -hmm. prepare adequately for some form of competition. Mm. And that question is kind of intentionally worded to be a trap. Because what does adequate mean? Is there such a thing as adequate preparation? Honestly, you can always prepare more. You can always do one more rep. You can always find one more minute to prepare yourself for whatever you're doing. So I wonder if this response is maybe a bit of blindness to that fact, Mm. if there's some complacency seeping in. I don't know. What was your response to this answer? Similar to how how you saw it, I think. Uh, The question I had in my head is, is it always good enough? Like, is that preparation always good enough? Like, sure. I think you can acknowledge that even if you're a person who always prepares, did it work? Right. There's always room for improvement again. So I I, I think that's a bit of a trap answer and one that I would encourage that person to think a little bit more about, you know, is there more they can get from their preparation? But at many points in my life, I would have put forth the same answer. (laughs) And maybe if you had caught me on an a certain day of the week this week, I would have put forth that answer. You know, I, I think confidence in your preparation is important. You have to believe you've adequately gotten to your, yourself to a place where you're ready to compete. But it also calls in some possible overconfidence as well, I would say. Yeah. And, and I'd say the one other piece of it is maybe when answering this, you're thinking of certain performances or certain things you do. And so with those in mind, you're thinking, yeah, I, I do always prepare. And so a little confirmation bias we're getting to here. Yeah, maybe. But, but I think also like think about maybe, there are probably things that this person does always prepare for and and maybe even does it well. And so my challenge would be think about what you do for those and see if there's other areas of life that perhaps you could bring the same level of preparation to and, and find success in other areas. Awesome. Great takeaway. Uh, next answer. Team started a stretch of disappointing games. Teammates became negative. Coach didn't stop the behavior. Being a role player on the team, I thought it wasn't my team to step up and call people out on comments like, we are so bad, we're terrible, remember when we were good. 
This attitude rubbed off on myself. I became more apathetic and disconnected. I was mentally exhausted with the sport and knew I wouldn't play another competitive game of this sport after this toxic season. Thus felt unable to motivate myself. Instead, became more focused on transitioning to a new stage of my life, college. Hmm. What do you have to say about this response, Jonathan? So another area of looking into goal setting. So I mentioned implementation intention. So the idea that when you're trying to achieve something, you should consider what could get in the way and make a plan for it. Another piece of that is Gabriel Oetengen is is the researcher behind this. She, she has this concept called mental contrasting, where essentially you vividly in your mind contrast what you can get that's a benefit out of a goal you're looking to achieve versus what's getting in your way. And a lot of times doing this, you see that there's a ton of really worthwhile benefits and the obstacles are manageable and that energizes you. And you, you go forth to this goal with a sweet plan in place and you go for it. Other times you think about a goal or or something upcoming and you realize that while there are some benefits, the obstacles in your way or the struggles are way, way, way more numerous and that's okay it's at that point that you can just abandon that goal without spending a lot of time of it. And I think if more people did that, they wouldn't find themselves six months into doing something like perhaps even calling back to, we were talking about college earlier, like maybe they're not even studying the wrong thing or in the wrong career. And they realized from the get go that that wasn't going to work for them. And maybe they would have put their effort into something else. Yeah, this kind of calls to grinding a little bit as well, running against the wall until you finally <laughs> break through it. And some, sometimes goal abandonment is a good thing. In the moment, I bet this experience probably felt pretty negative, mm-hmm. but you see the end result. Instead, this person became more focused on transitioning to the new stage of their life, college. That might have been a successful transition and, and maybe the correct transition to make. Right. Okay, I, I want to move on to our next question now. Uh, we asked our listeners, what is your typical response to a trying or unsuccessful day of competition? And I can definitely relate to this first response uh, at earlier points in my life. This is 100% what I would have done. If it's something that I've prepared for or cared about, I tend to get down on myself. I will out- outwardly try to verbalize the things that went well, but deep down, I focus on only the negative outcomes. In the longer term, I lighten up about the situation and try to find ways to improve upon the shortcomings of that competition. You know, they mentioned they go through some self-flagellation. I suck. I feel guilty. I'm ashamed. But they do note that they tend to get back on the horse quickly and try to forget about their failure. Yeah, that last part sounds sounds great. Right. Like it, it clearly they they figured out like th- there's a step between that. There's a, it doesn't just go from like everything sucks to okay, I'm better. Let's go. I imagine there's some type of inventory that they're taking with themselves in between to figure out how to push past. And so when I run into situations like this, I I like people to think about like overall is how I'm responding to whatever event happened, working for me or not working for me, because it's not necessarily bad to get in this place where you're thinking about the negative outcomes, it's how much time you're spending on it. And so if Mm. you dwell on the negative for a little bit and that spurs you into action or you figure out like, what could you have done differently? And then you you move past it like that seems helpful and facilitative. But then if you, if you do that too long, then uh, that, that could definitely harm or get in your way. 
Yeah, I guess I would I would look to seize on some specific language here. And, you know, it could just be in artful drafting and, and not really getting at the core of what's going on. Or it could actually point to what I see as maybe a harmful response. But this person notes they tend to get back on the horse quickly and try to forget about the faux pas. And I think just like forgetting and displacing it Mm -hmm. is not exactly what you're trying to accomplish. You're trying to integrate it, right? It's not supposed to be something to be discarded. It's something to use as a stepping stone to greater success in the future. Yeah. And also the the mismatch of trying to verbalize things outwardly that went well, but focusing still internally on the negative. So I wonder if that's like talking to other people and saying it went well, but like not not believing what you're selling. Yeah. It's almost like this person is, I I mean, we've all had that friend who comes over to us and just complains about how things are going poorly for them. Right. And in general, that's not a super pleasant conversation to have. Right. And I think this person recognizes that and is being conscious of that fact in his dealings with others. But I wonder if he's doing it as a service, not to himself, but the people around him, which is, you know, to be lauded, it's admirable for sure, not to necessarily force your bad beats on someone else, but you do have to address them and you have to integrate them appropriately and learn from them. And maybe this focus on the emotions of others is actually inhibiting his ability to get to the core of a failure. Yeah. I I think what's awesome here though, is it does show that at some level, this person is able to really take stock of what did go well and what didn't. And right. Right. I think in particular when it is something, I mean, they mentioned it's something they prepared for, cared about, and we've all been in that place where we had a performance that we're really looking forward to. We put in the time, we put in the effort, and it didn't go how we wanted. Maybe it was our fault, maybe it wasn't. And I don't think everyone has that ability to figure out what were those things that I can sustain for next time and what was the stuff that I that I should improve. And it sounds like this person's at least experiencing that balance. They maybe are dwelling more on the negative aspects, but there's, there's good stuff there of like figuring out now, just how do I get that out of my head? So maybe it's just writing down an inventory of like, what am I going to do for next time? If this comes up again or weight management was mentioned, but like, so that's an ongoing goal. So what are the things that I'm doing that are working and what are the things that I need to like, let myself off the hook for, so to speak, like, or at least not take some of the stuff as hard. Yeah. Yeah. And like you said previously, I think we have very emotionally sophisticated listeners. Yeah. At least that's that's the impression I'm getting from reading these responses. I, I may be nitpicking, but this person is taking stock of their failures. They're trying to improve from them. I just think there's some hiccups along the way that maybe are keeping them from getting the most they possibly can out of the situation. Right. Uh, okay. Next response. Usually I don't have a strong emotional response in the moment and mostly analyze what happened and why I was unsuccessful. If I'm able to find some time alone, I let my emotions run their course and then I let them go. And this is like a plus gold star answer, (laughs) right? Like this is the best way to do it. I'd say, yeah, mostly again, like we're going to be nitpicking part of these where we're trying to discern an entire person's reaction to something based on a a few words. Um, But, but I see if I'm able to find some time alone and that if to me is is where I'm focusing because I think I like I do agree with you. Everything else 
is good. Catharsis is important. It seems like this person is able to, in the moment, muffle some of that, which might be good, might not. Like uh, emotions are fine. We are emotional creatures. You cannot get rid of emotions. They inform everything that we do. And it sounds like at the end, when this person is able to find time, they do let their emotions out. They let them go, which is good because we want to control when that stuff comes out. Because if we don't, at some point, it's just going to be like a balloon popping. And that doesn't always happen when we want it to. I would just say for this person to prioritize if, if they recognize that they need to be alone to handle the, the emotions that come with setbacks without with um, lack of success, that that should be built into their post-competition plan. Like, how do I find time on my own to let this stuff out? Awesome. I think that's fantastic advice. Uh, next response. What's recently become harder is that this disappointment or negative feelings about myself post a failure have come in waves. I overcome the initial disappointment to focus on spending time with friends and celebrating their results or accomplishments. And then later on, I wonder if I'm fit for competition or the level of competition I strive for when I am so unsuccessful. Hmm. Yeah. I think that <laughs> I think you and I are silent because it hits both of us. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a bit of imposter syndrome, right? Yeah. A little bit of that going on, not believing you, uh, you belong at the level you're currently competing at. You know, you're, you're there, you're competing. I'm assuming you've found some modicum of success or something that leads you to believe you have potential in this area and you're kind of disregarding that in the moment, it sounds like. Yeah, I think too, it might just be how we're defining success. So if we look at like, I've said before, I play hockey. I'm relatively new to hockey. I played lacrosse for most of my life and, and hockey is a new endeavor. So I, I am not a hockey all-star to even oversell it with that statement. And so I think you can look at, like if we take hockey as a competition, people might only focus on goals. And so yeah. maybe I have this idea in my mind that success is me scoring a bunch of goals, but like maybe that's not your skill set. So if there's a ton of other things you can do on the ice, off the ice, maybe you're being a great teammate or maybe you're like putting in the right work in practice or you're setting other people up or you're playing a, like a really good defensive game. And so you're being successful, but the way you're defining success isn't lining up with what you're actually achieving. Yeah. That's a, I mean, a very valuable advice. Always be evaluating what success actually means to you. I mean, I think this comes into play in league of legends a lot mm -hmm. where you see people focus on KDA. Uh, that's a ratio of kills to deaths and assists for people who don't play league of legends, but it's kind of like the most obvious metric but it also doesn't really mean all that much right. in the context of the game. Um, it, it's the flashy metric. In the same way, a hockey goal is the most obvious metric, but there's a million other things going on that led to the actual goal. So evaluating goals is always nice. Um, you know, I can talk about my own goals with Magic. For a long time, it was to be a Pro Tour competitor and a regular Pro Tour competitor. That's not currently my goal. My goal now is to produce quality Magic content, to build quality decks and to find some occasional good finishes at tournaments. And that's where I want my relationship with magic to be. It's more important to me to prioritize making good content around magic. 
Uh, and that was not my goal a few years ago. I, I, and at some point, there was this awkward transition where I still thought that was my goal and had to come to terms with the fact that my goals had shifted. Right. So it, it's always good to check in with your goals whenever you're pursuing any competitive endeavor. Yeah. And this person mentions that they focus on spending time with their friends and their friends' accomplishments. You mentioned magic. So I'm thinking this in terms of like a magic context and it might not be that. But like if you have people who are being successful in whatever endeavor it is, and they're still competing with you, testing with you, practicing with you. I imagine you're contributing value there. Even if you're not finding the individual results, like people hang out with other people who are at a very similar point in, in whatever performance it is you're looking for. So even though maybe you're not seeing your own results, I imagine you're making some contribution to your friends that's helping them get to that success. Right. And that shouldn't be downplayed. I mean, I think people, I think people do downplay that. They downplay their role in their teammates or fellow competitors success. And that's tough barrier to overcome. You need to give yourself credit for what you are truly accomplishing. Okay. Let's move on to the next answer here. This person states generally just frustration, particularly if I feel I rob myself of a good finish. It's one thing if I did my best and just didn't get there, but knowing I gave away wins or potential wins that would have led to a good result is always a combination of frustrating that I quote unquote had it and the feeling of knowing what to improve. Non-games are harder to recover from, again, in the context of magic, as it feels hopeless sometimes. One of the ways I vent this is if I'm at home is to flump. I literally face plant into my soft bed and just relax my body and breathe into the bed for a few minutes to calm down. Interestingly, with Rocket League lately, I don't feel a lot of the frustration of losing, but part of that is that I've recently started and there's so much room to improve. It's hard to feel like games are hopeless slash unimprovable. And maybe some of that is game length, where even if I have a teammate intentionally losing, I've at worst lost six minutes of time. <laughs> so much of this is awesome. Number one. I really flump. I really like the flump. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to start flumping on a regular yeah, basis. And, and stealing that term as like a, a recommendation. I'm also smiling because like i'm thinking of rocket league and so this is a another video game for those who don't know uh it's basically soccer in cars and you can like boost into the air and do all sorts of crazy aerial acrobatics to like score goals or defend goals it's also exceedingly fun if you've never played it And, and so i'm thinking back to when i first picked up the game when it when it was new and i'm like decidedly mediocre at this game but it's just so fun to play even when you're bad because just the ridiculous things you do it is so i'm I'm like having difficulty separating that fun at the end from the fact that the game is just fun but i wonder this person seems very invested in magic i like likely has has played it a ton more than rocket league and so i just wonder what the their goal is when they play Rocket League. Like, are they trying to be exceptional at Rocket League? Or is it Rocket League is fun? This person naturally just likes being good at what they play. And so that there's some amount of like practicing Rocket League to get better, but it's not like they boot up whatever console or PC they're using for it and, and go in with like, all right, I'm gonna be a Rocket League pro. Let's go. Yeah. You know, one thing I really want to point out, and this comes from a place of knowing magic really well, they note that they feel like there's so much room to improve. It's hard to feel like games are hopeless slash unimprovable. 
I promise you it's the same is true of magic <laughs> and you're just not seeing it right now. I think that's a cause for frustration for a lot of people mm-hmm. is that seeing mistakes in magic is so much harder. And yes, there are games that don't matter. A hundred percent. You you can't win given the cards you are dealt. That happens. I can't deny that. But you can give yourself more outs in those games. You can give yourself chances. You can focus on what you could have done differently to have a just a whiff of a chance if things had broken exactly right from that point forward. And the best players are maximizing those whiffs of success every single opportunity they get. Every single opportunity. And where you're telling yourself that you played a non-game... Uh, Half of your non-games were probably games in the right hands. And I know that's hard to take. And you say, no, that can't be true. I'm telling you, half of your non-games are games in the right hands. And you know, if you haven't yet reached that pinnacle of magic, this is hard to swallow. But there's a lot of growth left to do in that game as well. And maybe going back to kind of your Rocket League perspective where you still have so much to learn. So how can you get upset? I think bringing some of that back to your magic game could be beneficial. Yeah. I think it's also harder. The the better you get at something, the little tweaks of the dial that you need to adjust to continually improve, just get harder. Like I was talking to some colleagues the other day of what it's like when someone's like the best of the best of the best, where they are really just chasing themselves like that person doesn't have someone else to watch them compete and give them the same level of feedback as where they're on. Like I think of Sean White in, in snowboarding, like it's at the point now where he is at Olympics, he wins the gold medal and then like has an extra run and just tries to like beat his own best. I'm not saying like our listeners are Sean White. If you're there, Hey Sean, you're, you're good at snowboarding. But I, I think when you get towards the the higher level of skill, it's harder to find those little areas of improvement. And so find someone else who is better than you and have them watch. Like Brian's saying, if it, if half of your games are, are non-games, have another person figure out what was a game about those non-games. Yeah, there's, there's almost always something. And, you know, just ha- having that attitude. Here's the other thing. Even if this isn't true, these games really were non-games. There's no way you could get there. But having that attitude is going to teach you more than not having mm-hmm. that attitude. And that's something to hold on to is you can always be learning even in situations where things truly were hopeless. But I have a feeling those situations are less prevalent than you might believe. Okay, next response. At times, I overfocus and obsess over a certain moment to the point where I can't remember the rest of the match. For the majority, I distance myself from competition through relaxing measures like music or eating. Interesting. So for the first one, that sounds like the first part of this, it sounds useful if the point you're obsessing about is something that you can control or improve on. Right, right. If it's not, which is probably the case at least some of the time, it does us a lot more good to think about where we could have influenced the match uh, or the competition, the game, etc., because that's stuff we can actually change. The, the second piece about distancing yourself, relaxing, listening to music, eating, finding ways to rejuvenate is massively important. It's critical for your mental toughness, your resilience, your ability to, to handle stressors. One point of advice there is 
figure out ways to match up your rejuvenation with whatever it is you did all day. So if you spent the day doing some type of grueling physical competition, it's probably not the day to like use the gym as your catharsis or your rejuvenation. Like you're already physically taxed. Similarly, like if you were testing all day and like taking exams, using your brain a ton and you ordinarily love reading a book to relax, don't go home and read a book. Like you've already spent your brain all day. Um, whereas if you like find something that uses a different type of, of energy, like that is actually rejuvenating and not adding to your existing fatigue. Yeah. I have two types of catharsis. One is running. The other is gaming. And mm-hmm. essentially I use running to get away after I've done a bunch of mental things and I use gaming after physical things. And yep. that, that completely works for me. So I'm buying into this idea. All right, I want to hop on to our next question now. We asked our listeners to describe an area where you consider yourself an expert. Describe how you gained your expertise in that field. If you ever have moments where you question your expertise, why? Yeah, before we even get into an answer, like to go back to just who our listeners are, like I felt like no one was comfortable saying that they're an expert. And so and I wonder if that's like because we talked about expertise at an earlier cast and people are now like critically evaluating, ooh, I don't know, like, am I at that level yet? But I think it also comes from just some amount of humility and or people just feeling like because they're new at something doesn't mean that they have any degree of expertise. Right, right. And I, I think the answers were really interesting in regards to that. So let, let me read one. Uh, This one states, I play duplicate bridge, which is a competitive form of the game. We compete for points. This is 100% a brain game, and my reaction to the stress and mental fatigue involved in the game detracts from my performance. I'm listening to this cast to find ways to deal with this. I'm not an expert and never will be. That's okay with me. I just would like to play better, and I believe I could if I could think more clearly when I play. And I love this answer. This is a great answer. Like this person has made peace with their relationship with the game. They still have the desire to improve, but they don't want to pursue expertise. They don't consider themselves an expert. They just want to find more clarity in their thinking while they're playing the game. And I'm here for that 100%. Yeah, it's awesome. The Just the way that this person is describing it, it almost feels like a lifelong learner type approach to things and it's that type of belief that helps people continually find what we were talking about earlier those little edges that maybe they wouldn't have noticed if they're just complacent with where they are it also the reference is going to escape me i believe it was the creator of jiu-jitsu, some form of martial arts. This person was like one of the creators. They obviously had like, if you were to give them a belt, like 17 degree black belt or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's not a Gracie, when, is it? Like Hoist Gracie or? No. When this person died, they had talked to their like closest confidants and they requested to be buried with their white belt. And the message that they were trying to send is that even at this top level, if you give up learning that that is not how you achieve like the the top of your craft, that even at the top level, you should always be pushing yourself and finding ways to improve what you're doing, improve yourself as a person. And it sounds like this person 
who plays duplicate bridges is, is come to peace with something similar. Like they're not an expert, but they probably are an expert compared to other people. They just have this belief that there's always something more that they could be doing. And so it, that's what drives them. Right. Right. Yeah. I, I really like this response. I thought it showed a lot of self-awareness. Not to say our next response, where this person was willing to qualify themselves as an expert, doesn't show self-awareness. Uh, you know, there's there's two kinds of self-awareness. You can be aware that you have a ton to learn, and you can also acknowledge how far you've come and what you've accomplished. And I think both are equally important. But our next answer says audio editing. There was an underutilized skill at film school. Most other students wanted to become directors or cinematographers. I got a plethora of opportunities to work others' projects since I was typecast as the audio guy. I kept at it, whether it's films or podcasts. I was an intern at a post-production audio house and had a great relationship with my audio professor who happened to be an Oscar winner who gave me great tips on the craft. I had several moments early on where I questioned my expertise. The film industry is very competitive. If you don't wow some clients, colleagues, you won't get more work. There were times that might have been out of my control where I got dropped from big projects. It's also hard to quantify how good of a job you're doing at times. In essence, your job is to be invisible. People only tend to notice audio when it's bad. <laughs> and that's crazy. What a crazy field to be involved in where your job is yeah. to disappear. It's like being you know, an NFL official, right? Those guys are not right. supposed to be seen. or Yeah, you only see them when they're doing something that gets you mad. Right, right. And that's, man, that's a tough field to be able to evaluate your, your worth in. Uh, so what'd you take away from this answer? I think it's neat. The, the relationship with audio professor, I think, is a mark of someone who's looking for constant ways to seek feedback. And, and part of this answer, sh- this shows confidence that this person believes that they are an expert and, and none, nothing about this answer says like, yeah, I'm great at audio editing and there's nothing left to learn and like pack it in. I'm an, I'm an expert. I'm the audio editor. And, and we draw confidence from a ton of different sources. So it seems like this person was able to see other successful people. Uh, they were able to use and underutilize skill that they already had in school and they found a way to practice and hone it that it feels like this confidence is coming from the fact that this person is able to recognize that they've done stuff before that led to audio editing. And now they've just like jumped into that field and, and gotten a ton of experience. Yeah. I, this is a good lesson and don't be afraid to claim your expertise. You you've earned it. You deserve it. Take, take stock in how you've gotten to this point. Cause I'm sure this person in providing this, assessment of their expertise. These factors are, is not something they consider on a day-to-day basis. It's not something they're always thinking, well, I learned this and I was coached by this person who was very knowledgeable. Mm-hmm. They're just going about their day, right? You don't think of all these things in the moment when you're assessing your worth in the field or thinking about how far you've come, you lose sight of that background. And I think it's important to check in with the things that made us who we are and got us our expertise in whatever field we're working in or competing in. I think what's neat too is the idea that most other students wanted to become directors or cinematographers. So like even in this person's, their world, that this idea that an, they're an expert audio editor sounds like it isn't even something that people would appreciate in whatever circles this person went through. Whereas like they like just embrace the fact that they had this skill and they, they honed it and now they like while they were audio guy, now they're 
like expert audio guy. Yeah. I, I just think that's neat. Yeah, for sure. Uh, all right. Uh, one more question here. We are, we are running a bit longer than we usually do, but I, I love so many of these responses. I, yeah. I wish we had more time. So the question we posed was, what was your most cataclysmic failure as a competitor? What could you have done differently to avoid this failure? What thoughts, emotions, reactions did you experience during this failure? What, if anything, did you learn? And this person responded, giving up a goal in a close game due to my simple mistake costing the team the game details i'm the defender with the ball facing the goal attacking player on my back i turn left with my right foot dominant foot with the ball towards goal side attacker makes an easy steal open point blank shot easy goal my brain knows the correct play i turn right instead of left away from the goal for the safer play instead i acted on instinct using my dominant foot because of the fast pace of the game not sure how I'm supposed to avoid a brain fart in this case. Maybe I didn't eat right that day. Maybe I wasn't fully <laughs> mentally focused that day. I was devastated and embarrassed because it was a simple mistake. I make the correct decision 99 times out of 100. My teammates were dumbfounded that I made the mistake, thus making me feel more shame. I got benched immediately, so I got an earful and had the rest of the game to think about it. At the time, the only thing I learned was not to make that particular mistake again. Now I learned I could have practiced my left foot more, strategized with my brain instead of depending on instinct. Let's unpack there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I agree with this person that practice likely had some part of uh, what this person's seeing as the failure. Like, so they, in some point in, in practice, like, obviously did that play a bunch of times or, or that game situation more so. And they're saying that their brain like quote unquote knew what their correct play was, but it's really interesting. Like in the moment, if we are not actually actively thinking about what we're supposed to do, our brain is just going to operate on what we've programmed it. And so people calling this muscle memory, our, our muscles don't actually have brains, so like they don't remember things. But our our brain does remember a set of patterns. Uh, uh, they call them like motor programs that we've done over and over and over again. And then if we're acting automatically, they just like press play on that program and it happens. And so it's possible that this person in practice just didn't practice that enough. And so in the moment, brain went to whatever was dominant, and that wasn't the right play. I think we've all been there, right? Like I can think back of a bunch of athletic situations where almost as I'm doing the act, mm-hmm. I'm chastising. My, why are you doing this? What's happening? Why am I throwing this pass short? Or why am I, you know, using my left hand instead of my right hand? It's something that comes up all the time in athletic pursuits. And I guess that it's so painful because it doesn't feel like you had any agency over it, right? Like that's yeah. the whole thing is it's just like, I don't know why I, I can't give you a reason why I did this. 99 times out of 100, I do the other thing. In this spot, I did this, and I, I don't know how to make peace with it. It sounds like it's what this person is saying, basically. Yeah, and so other than prog- like practicing the right way to do it, I'm not at all suggesting in the moment, like if you have this game situation, you should just keep telling yourself, like, do the other thing, do the other thing. Because it, it is good that our brain acts automatically when we're performing, because if we start to analyze or critique or judge what it is we're doing, we end up doing the wrong thing. But one thing you can do is build in cues in your practice that help your brain out when it needs to guide its attention. Like for me, I think back to playing defense in lacrosse 
if someone was trying to get past me, they do all sorts of like fancy moves with their hands and, and move their feet around. They like try to juke you. But if you watch someone's hips, that's going to tell you where their body's moving. And so a mm. lot of times I would have to just like say hips to myself in my head to make sure that my attention was where it needed to be to try to minimize my brain doing the wrong thing. Yeah. I, that's a common approach in training for sports. I mean, so much of our play as defensive linemen in football was based around hands. Mm -hmm. Every practice, hands were emphasized. Getting hands up under our opponent's pads. That's always the goal. Get your hands under your opponent's pads. Get lower than them. And I don't think there was a practice that went by where we didn't emphasize that point as defensive players. And that was designed to get us always putting our hands under our opponent's pads, always striving for that goal, you know, by instinct. And props to this person for recognizing, like, because the devastation, like I said, comes from feeling like this is unassailable, nothing you can do. But there is something you can do. You practice more. And you focus on, like you said, building in cues and getting the quote unquote muscle memory more and more defined as time goes on. I mean, nothing's going to fix it in that moment, right? But dwelling on it doesn't accomplish anything either. And it's worth a lot more to say, okay, it's time to change up my practice routine. So this does not happen again. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, I think that's going to do it for the responses. We have a bunch more. There's just not enough time to cover them all. I would love to sit here for hours and do this all day because these responses were fantastic. So thank you to everyone who provided them. And if you right now are listening to this show and thinking, wow, I really would like to provide my answers to the questions next time Brian and Jonathan do this, I've got some really good news for you. So we are about to launch the Head Games Patreon page. Uh, All of you folks who have reached out asking how you can support head games, how you can help make it better. We're launching a Patreon page and there'll be varying levels of support you'll be able to offer. One of the Patreon benefits we'll be offering is the ability to participate in these type of question sessions and submit your answers and have Jonathan and I discuss them on the podcast. A bunch of other things we're talking about doing over there, maybe some monthly streaming, some newsletter type material where we'll sum up some of the things we've talked about over the past few episodes, maybe on a monthly basis, provide some articles, some insights, some further thoughts on the topics, all kinds of good stuff we're working on right now. So I encourage you to go check out that Patreon page. It's going to be www.patreon.com forward slash head games podcast. And that should be up as this cast goes up and give everyone the chance to support head games. So thank you ever so much for listening. We hope to see you over at the Patreon page and we hope you come back next week to play some more head games. Mm -hmm.